This is the XC's top five for the last week in October 2020. Getting the band back together again because we've got five good ones this week. My name is Michael Doyle and I'm joined as always by Andrew Crookshank. Andrew, it's actually been a little while since we've done this. Nice to nice to see your face, at least on our Zoom call here, and nice to hear your voice, presumably. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, it has been a while. Feels nice to be uh be back in the podcasting seat. So I'm ready to go. Excellent. Yeah, we've got we've got five good ones today. And Alex Sear, you're also joining us uh, from Toronto. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Kind of uh, falling into full winter mode a bit prematurely. So it's still dark out, but it's nice to see some some smiling faces. Yeah, I went for a uh, I went for a run yesterday evening, and it was just like pissing rain and cold and i i i dusted the tights off for the first time i don't know what you got do you guys have like a tights rule like a temperature that where you're like i don't i know some people are like i wear shorts until yeah. this temperature do you, oh alex has got a rule i i have a rule and i'm breaking it this year i used to be super hardcore about it anything over zero i'd wear shorts and I think I've softened because I've worn tights a bunch of times already this year. Right now, my rule is hovers more around the six, seven degree mark. So oh, getting, I don't know why, but I'm I'm getting soft with age. I think Andrew, he's yeah, he's getting soft. He's he's turning into like us, and it's like ooh, it's ten degrees Celsius. It's still getting a little nippy. I'm gonna get the gloves out. That's what I ha- I don't know if it's just a if it's an age thing. Like if it's just you become more reasonable or maybe you just become <laughs> colder as you get older, but I'm, I'm same deal. We had guys on the, on the varsity team back in the day who same thing would, would not put on tights unless it was below zero. Um, and I'm, I'm now, you know, I'm dressed in a jacket tights, like three layers to go for a run when it's like 10 degrees. So maybe it just means we need to run harder. <laughs> that's possibly that's possibly it all right so today we've got uh, a bevy of stories including um a familiar name from the 2012 olympics and 2016 i guess as well has popped up for all the wrong reasons in the news this week uh we've got we'll talk a little bit about a kind of amazing ultra that took place in the last week as well and uh an a, an older gentleman uh, vying for goat marathoner status, as well as the IOC being the IOC. But first, our first topic of the day, with a dearth of running events, of races around the world, obviously for the last number of months, a group or groups of uh, elite training squads in the U.S. have been taking things into their own hands recently as evidenced by a real treat that we've been uh, served up in the last seven days is not one now, but two races uh, hosted by the Hanson's Brooks original distance project out of Michigan. And they put on an Ekiden last week, which was a sort of a, that's a Japanese style marathon relay, uh, mixed relay, which we'll talk about real quick. But then this morning they just slid in a half like a like a world class half marathon uh, run on these bike paths out in beautiful Michigan with the fall colors. A and what's most fascinating about this guys is that they've got 
drones in the air and people on bikes and they've been doing live streams of both events with mixed mixed success technically speaking but andrew unpack a little bit first real quick the ekiden it happened a week ago so i guess we don't need to go into too too much detail but just sort of like give us a snapshot of that and then uh, alex i'll pivot to you for the um for the half marathon results and and kind of what your your initial takeaway thoughts were from this this morning so andrew the Eki Den. Yeah, they uh, they keep surprising us. They keep just uh, throwing stuff at us. These these elite groups. Um, but the the Eki Den was uh, it was an impressive race. They they threw together a, a really deep field, uh, deep teams. Despite the fact that yeah, they did have some some technical difficulties with the the live stream. Um, but it ended up being NAS elite. They took home the uh, the win. They clocked a time two ten eleven. Uh, overall, so so it's the Anakiden is um, a bunch of different distances that equate to a marathon, um, and so they Naz Elite managed to beat the next closest team, which was host Hanson Brooks, um, by nearly two minutes, uh, as well as other teams like Minnesota Distance Elite were there, Roots Running Project, Atlanta Track Club, and Team Boulder. Um, so just to kind of give you an idea of of what NAS Elite's team was running. We had uh, Tyler Day, a newcomer to NAS. He started the, the team off with a 10K and he ran 28.46. He then passed the baton off to Lauren Paquette. She ran 6.1K and was going 15.50 for 5K pace, which is also very fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they passed it off to Rory Linkletter for the third leg. He was 5K. He passed it to Kellen Taylor, who ran 10K. She passed it off to Scott Fobble for another 6.1K. And finally to Danny Shanahan for the final 5K. Um, so they threw together a, a pretty impressive team in a very fast time. Yeah, Alex, it's, kind of, it's been kind of fun because they've been streaming these events on Facebook. Uh, and obviously with the first event last week, the Eki Den, they had huge problems and uh, they ended up basically having to uh, fill with no real images of the race for two-ish hours uh this time around with the half marathon a lot more success with the with the live stream it was a lot of fun to watch um how did the live how did the uh, this morning's events go it's really killing my workflow michael one day a week usually wednesdays i have to dedicate to michigan's races and i'm i'm <laughs> getting so distracted it's been hours i've been on my facebook uh, i'm happy that they they got the stream figured out because uh both races were very entertaining and the finish of the men's race was incredibly close. Um, but like you said, it's, it's crazy. The world-class field they were able to assemble despite the pandemic, despite the limitations. Um, let's start with the women's side. Um, really strong race, two sub 70 minute time. So Kara D'Amato took the win, huge PB. She just, she just snuck under 70 um, I think in her collegiate days when she was running 69.59 today, ran a massive PB, 68.57, and she won by almost a minute. She beat out Emma Bates, who also PB'd uh, by nearly two minutes herself. She was 69.44. And then in third was Elena Tab, who ran 71.02, 111.02. So um, a really strong field, uh, especially top-heavy on, on the women's side. And uh, I'd be remiss not to mention Lani Marchand, our Canadian, finishing 10th. Um, not her personal best time, but what makes it impressive for her is she's been out for like three years. 
with uh, hip labrum issues. So we know usually when someone says hip labrum, you just kind of cringe. It's a, it's a pretty serious issue. And I think at times she wasn't sure if she'd be able to come back. So, you know, this is just another, now she puts herself in the race for uh, the 2021 Olympics, which we know in the women's marathon in Canada, super deep. So uh, hats off to Lani Marchand for coming back from those injuries. And then the men's side, um, I'd say, was it as top heavy? Tough to say, but it was closer. And it was, I think, perhaps deeper. There were nine men who ran in the 62s. So you rarely see that ever. Um, and I got I to gotta reproach uh, Rory Linkletter here. He never told me he was running a half marathon. I had him on the podcast a couple of days ago. I'm starting to think this was some sort of a secret event. <laughs> I looked like in on Twitter and I looked at runner space and there was very little hype for this event. So it was like... Mm. They knew the fast people would be there, and that was enough. But for the men's race, it was insanely close. The top four times, or the top four finishers were separated by three seconds. And the winner was Morgan Pearson, who's run, I think, with Tin Man Elite a bit. But his his um, marker is that he's dabbled in triathlon a whole lot, and he's a very skilled triathlete. And he took down a field of full-time runners here. Um, 62-15 was his time. He beat... Tyler Day, who uh, Andrew mentioned is a newcomer at NAZ Elite and was a six-time All-American, I think, in the NCAA, um, just ran a 62-16. So Day is fit right now. We know that. Uh, and then Scott Fobble, 209 guy, 62-18. So super close on the, on, on the top end. And uh, we'll send a, a shout-out to, to Rory. Rory Linkletter, who was on our podcast, uh, 62.37 for him. So uh, solid time and, yeah, pretty fun to watch. I, I didn't do much work this morning. Yeah, I mean, I think both events were actually quite compelling today. And uh, I think uh, once you get the stream technical issues ironed out, as they did this morning, it it the race itself you know, it's the entertainment, right? Particularly the men's race because of all how close the top 10 were. You, I did find myself in the last mile really kind of like shutting down everything else I did and staring at the, at the feed for, you know, the last few minutes watching as the race played out. And they had a nice drone shot overhead uh, for, for some of it. I wonder if this is, you know, going to be part of our, our future, certainly in 2021, where it's going to be these kind of like homespun events uh that are that are also streamed as something that we can follow along ourselves so uh yeah we'll see we shall see but um really appreciated that hansen's brooks uh put that together we should note one final thing that uh comes to mind here is that uh uh, the glaring hole in the sort of like star system of uh, elite groups in the u.s sort of influencer you know, IG YouTube groups in the U S that was not there was the Bowerman project, the, uh, sorry, the Bowerman, uh, um, club the the, uh, Bowerman elite from Nike from, uh, Oregon, uh, they had a COVID positive test, I believe last week. And that's why they didn't show up at the Ekiden. And then obviously none of their athletes were there this week either, which is, you know, that's, that's just too bad, but that is another group of really high profile athletes that, uh, we should have seen over the last seven days in Michigan, but, but unfortunately didn't. And the cool thing about all this is, is this tees up, uh, the 
race that's happening in Arizona in December, the uh, distance, the marathon project that's happening in December, which will be a Olympic qualifying race for athletes that are from outside the U.S. and then for athletes within the U.S., it will be an opportunity to run a world-class marathon given the situation. And a lot of the athletes that ran today are planning on running that. So it was like over half the athletes in both the men's and the women's field are planning on running that that race in Arizona in December. So we'll certainly be watching that very closely. All right, moving on. Topic number two, a 2012 Olympic gold medalist in the 1500 meters has got some explaining to do. Uh, Alex uh, Taufik Makloufi of Algeria is in the news for all the wrong reasons. Uh, break down for us what the heck is going on with Makloufi or potentially going on with Makloufi. So if you remember Makloufi, he came into the forefront in 2012 by winning decidedly the 1500 meters. And then in 26 at the, the London Olympics in 2016 Olympics, he was right back on top with two silver medals in the 15 and the eight. So a great peaker, we've always said. But recently, a French TV program called Stade 2 reported that officers from the Central Office for the Fight Against Environmental and Public Health Damage had carried out a search at sports complex INSEP in early September in France and found some syringes and potentially illegal medication in McLuffy's equipment bag that he would have left there in March of this year. So uh, probably left it there and then the pandemic broke out and then he didn't revisit the bag. So right now, investigations around whether or not the substances indeed belong to Mac Luffy are underway. So a bit of background on Mac Luffy. So like we said, he's 32. He's got three Olympic medals to his credit. And he is from Algeria, but regularly trains in France to be near his coach, Philippe Dupont. And uh, Dupont has coached European 10,000 meter champion Morhad Amdouni who has been accused of purchasing banned substances back in 2017. So uh, Alduni himself was never banned. But when the media revealed allegations against against him, Zupon stopped coaching him. So uh, it's something that we're following. I can't help but but recall some, at least a weird little anecdote that I remember back from my undergrad in 2016. Um, I used to train with a runner from France who used to train at the same complex as McLuffy. And he said that, you know, one day he and his friend had walked in on McLuffy holding a bunch of syringes. Um, now that in itself isn't enough to say that he was doping. You know, some people have have uh, maybe conditions that they need to use syringes to inject themselves with something. And uh, he never knew what was in the syringes, but definitely curious. So, uh, yeah, I guess we're going to keep following that. Very diplomatically put, Alex. Um, yeah, I, I always kind of wonder about, like, if you're an elite athlete, you're... I, I, especially in this day and age, you've got to be thinking, at least you and your, your team have to be thinking like, let's avoid anything involving a syringe unless a doctor is present. And even when a doctor's present, like let's question like what, why are we injecting this versus taking it in some other capacity? It's just the optics are really bad if you're, especially if you're doing nothing wrong. But uh, Andrew, this is a guy who, if you follow the sport really closely, certainly if you've been reporting on the sport um, as a journalist for any number of years, He's somebody who's talked about a lot. And I always, I kind of hate uh, 
saying it that way, but it is he is somebody where there's been a lot of gossip and rumors and murmuring over the years. Whether that's fair or not, I don't know. It's certainly something I feel uncomfortable about even discussing on this podcast because uh, you certainly don't want to accuse somebody of something when perhaps they're innocent. Um, however, he is somebody, he is a name that keeps coming up over and over again. Tell us a little bit about kind of that history that we're sort of familiar with. McCluffy is, is definitely a, a curious character. Um, kind of since 2010, he's, uh, he's gone through these, these cycles where he'll disappear kind of from the short list of, of elite milers in the world for what seems like years. And then he reemerges just in time for the Olympics and world championships um, and seems to, to kind of dominate. I, I don't know if maybe he's, he's got a, just got a cabin in the woods like Seb Co or something that he's going to. Um, it's hard to say, but uh, we rarely see him at other events like Diamond League events. He doesn't really take part. Uh, there are also the, the strange circumstances around his 2012 1500 meter Olympic win. Um, he'd, he'd initially been disqualified from the event uh, because he'd been considered to not having provided a, a bona fide effort in the 800 meters competition. He, he was entered in the 800 as well, and he slowed down and then he withdrew. Um, so the, the Algeria had failed to withdraw him from the 800 meters after he reached the 1500 meter finals. So he was supposed to be um, disqualified for that, but he showed later showed proof that he was unwell before the race. So uh, he was reinstated uh, into the 1500 meter final and, and ended up winning. So, uh, but there's, there's been a long history of doping uh, in Algeria. Even the, uh, the nation's president, Mustafa Baraf uh, said in 2018 that Algerian athletes are not working, but they are doping to achieve results at the national level to qualify and compete in high-level international competitions, which explains the lack of results at the international level. Uh, Baraf also claimed that he had twice reported his suspicions to the Directorate General of National Security, who he says have so far failed to investigate any of these allegations. I mean, a lot of that's... Doesn't bode well for McCluffy, and that's pretty damning. Uh, I should also add that his coach uh, previous to Philippe Dupont was very briefly worked with Jama Aden, uh, who is the Ethiopian coach who uh, is he Ethiopian by birth. Anyway, I'll have to check that. But uh, he he's a coach who also has been under fire for, if you remember the incident uh, a few years ago, I believe it was in Spain uh, at a training camp where uh, their facilities were raided. The hotel they were staying in was raided and a, a bunch of syringes were found in his athletes, uh, in his athletes uh, hotel rooms. And I believe his own hotel room, if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of tendrils and connections between McCluffy and uh, some bad actors and some pretty dodgy behavior so i guess we'll allow the uh, powers that be to uh investigate this and hopefully get to the bottom of it and if the guy is innocent i mean hopefully to get to the bottom of it proving that he's innocent so that the guy can move on with his career and if he's guilty he's guilty uh one interesting last thing i took a real quick look at the um the finalist the finalists of only 2012 1500 meters guys if if mcluffy were to be found to have been doping uh back then which is kind of highly unlikely because this is a more recent incident. Uh, it would have been uh, Leo Manzano of the U.S. in gold, and uh, Matt Centrowitz would have gotten bronze. So, 
very different comportment to the uh, Olympic legacy uh, of these athletes if, uh, if that were to shift. But obviously, that remains to be seen. All right, moving on to the next topic. Topic number three, Biggs Backyard Ultra took place over the last week. Uh, and this is a highly unusual, even for an ultra, this is a pretty unusual race. Uh, quite a captivating concept. And we've actually talked about the sort of backyard structure, the backyard race uh, idea a couple of times over the course of the the pandemic, uh, because there have been a few virtual backyard ultras. Alex, but break down to us, um, for us, what Big's Backyard Ultra was all about. Yeah, so it's it's an annual event uh, during which runners must complete one four point one six 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 seven miles or six point seven kilometers, depending where you're from. Loop every hour. Sounds easy and enough, right? One hour, you got to only you have to only run, you know, six k. Let's do it. Yeah, if you keep running straight, that's probably like six or 10, 10 minute kilometers, nine minute kilometers. Right. Um, but the event continues. The, the it's not the intensity, but it's the length of the event. It continues until only one runner is standing. So think about that. And this year, uh, Courtney DeWalter, no surprise, has won. Um, and she ran. Okay, get ready for this. Sixty-eight loops. So that that ties the race record set in twenty eighteen by Johan Steel of Sweden. And she's uh, why did you just not do one more loop anyway? Two hundred eighty-three miles, four hundred fifty-seven kilometers. Two hundred and eighty-three miles. Like at this point, might as well you just do one extra loop and set the record. Maybe it was like a respect thing to just to to, to tie Steel, but wow, yeah. 283, 456. Um, she did it on the event's original course in Bell Buckle, Tennessee. Not everyone was on the course. We'll get into that uh, a bit later. But she beat uh, 2019 champion Maggie Guturel in the process, who, oh, that's sad, took a wrong turn on her 40th loop and ended her race there. Oh. Um and yeah, it's worth mentioning this year, 75% of the field, which had been selected back in 2019 before COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic, where international level of uh, competitors had to compete virtually. So the event ended up being run out of 20 countries and was live streamed. And for the international competition, oh my God, this is even more impressive. Belgium's Karel Sabi one and completed 75 loops so 312 miles 503 kilometers and uh, i guess it's worth mentioning who is behind the organization of this madness a name we know a bit too well now laz lake lazarus lake the barkley marathon mastermind who else yes of course yeah and he was pretty involved in the the virtual versions of these backyard ultras that took place one in the first one in the spring to me at least kind of felt like in a weird way kind of the first big running event post the beginning of the covid pandemic uh it, it really kind of captured my imagination at least and, and tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of other people's imaginations as well because the live stream was well watched and it was uh Quite a compelling, bizarre, fascinating event. Um, I should also mention, and I feel it's important to do this, that uh, Lazarus Lake, over the course of the summertime, was under fire for uh, in in hosting 
one of his virtual events, um, he censored some athletes that were speaking out uh, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Kind of, kind of like the old school approach of saying, like, "Oh, let's stick to sports. Let's stick, keep running, running, and keep you know, quote unquote, politics out of it." Which uh, I completely disagree with, and uh, I've noticed that. Uh, the conversation around this has pointed out that like certain journalistic outlets are omitting the fact that, uh, that Laz's uh, events that, that, that this happened this summer and are quote unquote sticking to sports uh, when covering, you know, the, the upside and the positive end of this. Uh, and I'm not going to be a defender of Lazarus lakes. Um, his real name is Gary Cantrell uh, his behavior and all of that, um, and his choices, I think they're poor choices. I wonder how he thinks about them now in retrospect. I do not know. I've not spoken to him, but I think it is important to acknowledge the fact that this happened and it's unfortunate to say the least. And, uh, I don't think we live in, we don't live in a time, thankfully anymore, where, uh, sports and, and, greater social issues are kept separate uh i we just that we don't live in that world anymore and i think that's a good thing anyway um andrew it's kind of cool that like a woman won this event and uh ultra running is perhaps unique in that women can dominate these events in certain context and certain situations um which i think is exciting and makes kind of like shines an interesting light on ultra running specifically. It's a very, it's a, it's a much more, the farther you go, the more level the playing field. Um, what, what do you think of that? And also uh, what would your strategy be for running 4.17 miles in an hour over and over and over again? Yeah. Yeah. Gay, I hate to burst both of your, uh, your bubbles, but unfortunately we are, uh, at an inherent disadvantage to uh, to women when it comes to running ultra ultra races, um, uh, there there was a study actually a run repeat study that showed that women are better than men at maintaining a consistent pace over over extended periods of time. Um, there's some other advantages as well, like uh, women are better at coping with heat. Um, they also have less fluid loss um, and they burn more fat than men giving them a consistent and nearly limitless energy release. Um, a lot of it stems also from women just being kind of generally smaller than men are. So um, a lighter runner tends to put less stress on their body. Uh, and over time that has advantages, especially if it's up and down hills, uh, downhill in particular can, can really damage the body. Um, so, so it's not that surprising that DeWalter took the win actually. Uh, I thought her, her strategy was pretty interesting. She was um, running pretty consistently and she was taking eight to 10 minute naps between loops and she was giving herself enough time to, to eat and to kind of roll out and massage. Uh, whereas the second place was Harvey Lewis and he was less consistent with his pacing. He sometimes would come in and have a time with rest and other moments, other loops, he'd come in right before the next lap was about to start and would have no rest. Um, I think I, I would personally take DeWalter's route with this, try and run it as consistently as possible and give yourself enough time to maybe take a quick nap, get in some, some food, uh, some energy, get ready for the next one. But I have never done anything like this. So 
it sounds from the research like your your best bet is just to to shadow the closest female competitor and, and hope you can hold on realistically. Alex, what would your move be? What would your what would your uh, your one hour strategy be? So this summer uh, I was on Prince Edward Island, small province in Canada. If you're not from uh, the country, and I witnessed something similar to this race a bit of kind of a a smaller production but it was the same concept there was a a 6.7 kilometer loop that uh, a group of about 10 to 12 runners this is you know still pretty early in the COVID-19 days so this was one of the biggest gatherings I'd seen in a while back then um, where each had an hour to complete a loop and it was the same concept last runner standing and I was watching I wasn't I wasn't healthy enough to run 60 kilometers in a day few people are and uh what i noticed was that those who did well were those who kept their resting period relatively short and their pace relatively slow so there was one runner who went fast was running like you know four minute k's uh four to four 30 minute kilometers and that doesn't work in a long race like that you have to go slower so i think i would try to time myself to like be running for 45 minutes and then take 15 minutes of break. Because also I think what you don't want is to have too long of a break. So then you start again and, and you know, your legs are rusty and like, I've never tried this. So I'm, I'm, you know, shooting smoke out of my bum, but I don't know. (laughs) I think, uh, I think I would try to go for that relatively short break, lock in and just seven minute kilometers. I've never run a seven kilometer minute kilometer in my life, but I, that's what I would try and wear big Hoka shoes. I don't know why it just feels appropriate <laughs> Two two trackies and a marathon runner trying to figure out how best to run the most absurd, challenging ultra out there. Um, yeah, I think, I think, do I think to Walter's, uh, strategy is probably what I would imagine would be the smart move as well, where you try to be really consistent because you want to kind of like, cause you're thinking long-term, right? You're thinking, I got to run, you know, hopefully 50, 60, 70 of these laps. So I need to get my body like attuned to this rhythm and this, this hourly pattern that it's going to go through. Uh, I have a chuckle of thinking about like a seven or eight minute power nap every hour for, you know, several hours in a row. It's, I don't know if you guys, maybe you're too young, but, uh, the Seinfeld episode with Kramer trying to, uh, nap for what was it like 15 minutes on the hour instead of napping for eight hours every night. And then eventually he just slowly goes insane because <laughs> apparently, apparently I think it was uh Da Vinci had, that's how he, you know, this is what Kramer was saying in, in a <laughs> episode. That's how Da Vinci lived was uh, he didn't sleep eight hours at night. He didn't want to waste the time. So he had like little power naps at the end of the hour. I, totally mind boggling. I think what you have to do is you kind of have to, you also don't want to have to modify your own natural stride to, to too great a degree in either direction. You certainly don't want to be running too fast, but then also if you are modifying your stride to run what much more slowly than you're used to running, I think that also can do a little bit of, of, you know, can, can put some wear and tear on your body and over time you're going to break down. It's a total war of attrition, right? So you've got basically it's like threading a needle. You got to figure out like, like, as you said, Alex, like you don't want to be taking too much time off every hour because then you're going to be creaky getting back and starting again, especially like deep into the race. 
you need some rest, but you don't want to take too little rest. Uh, you want to run not, you don't want to run too quickly. You also don't want to run too slowly. It's just like, it's the, it's the Goldilocks scenario and pretty impressive, pretty amazing that she, uh, she sort of like totally figured out how to just like absolutely nail it. I, I think it should just be added quickly on the the note of Kramer and, and power naps that DeWalter did apparently start seeing things throughout the race. So apparently she started kind of seeing animals and she had this one vision of seeing being at like a circus and seeing Mickey Mouse throwing t-shirts at people. And I'm not sure whether this was during the naps or whether this was actually while she was competing, but it sounded like she was starting to go a little insane too. Yikes. Yeah. Well, if you've ever gone through a few days of sleep deprivation, you know, uh, you know what happens. It gets gets pretty squirrely, and that's without any exercise. So, unbelievable. Totally fascinating. Excited for next year's version of this event. I love stuff like this. All right, moving on to the next topic. Topic number four. Oh, this is a heavy one. Is Tommy Hughes our greatest living marathoner? Uh, Andrew, we've talked about Tommy Hughes. Now this is like, I think the third time we've talked about him. He's the, just a recap for anybody who's like, who the hell is Tommy Hughes? Tommy Hughes is a 60 year old Irish distance runner. And he just clocked another, uh, world record for his age category. The question I will pose to you, Andrew, is what the, the, the topic off the top, is this guy our greatest living marathoner? Is he eclipsing Kipchoge? <laughs> I oh I feel bad. Michael had question. the exact same thought. I had to to when I was prepping for this podcast, I had to go back and count the number of times we've now mentioned Tommy Hughes. For for a guy who's in his sixties, yeah, this is the third time we've spoken about him on the podcast. Yeah. Um the first time was when he and his son broke the world record for fastest combined times for father-son in the marathon. It was it was a novel experience. It was fun, it was impressive, but Quite honestly, I think maybe it was a slow week. Um, <laughs> well, I, mean, I think they broke five hours collectively. So they it was like two two thirty ish or under marathons, and it, didn't he beat his like thirty something year old son? Yeah, 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 he actually had the faster time. Um, and, and then progressing from that, not too long ago, he. Hughes goes out and crushes a half marathon. He runs 111.09. He takes 22 seconds off the over 60s half marathon world record. Um, I mean, it's, it's extremely impressive. He is an Olympian after all. He, he actually competed in the marathon at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. Um, so, so he's got some credentials. And then just this week, he, he runs the Down Royal Marathon. And he smashes the over 60 marathon world record by six minutes. He runs 2.30.02, um, which, I mean, I wish I could run that. That's I extremely know. impressive. And uh, apparently he's been running 100-mile weeks, and he claimed that he could have taken another two minutes off if it hadn't been so windy out. Uh, I'm excited to see this guy's next marathon. He was two seconds off going sub-230 as a 60-year-old. I I don't know what that uh, computes to if you you put it in the calculators to figure out like the age graded time on that, but it's got to be super hot. Uh, Alex, did you did you run the numbers on this? Is this guy is this guy in Kipchoge territory? 
Yeah, we did run the numbers and we're going to reveal them right here. But first, we're going to take a break to thank our sponsors, <laughs> Tommy Hughes. Thank you very much for funding this podcast. Uh, we're now going to give Tommy his due. Oh, my God. 202.46 is what his age graded time is. Wow. So, okay. He's still shy of Kipchoge, Bikili. Hangs around right around uh, Mazanet Garamu, actually. Fun fact. 202.48 is Garamu's time. So, uh, age graded Hughes is uh, Wow. So, although, yeah, we should probably also keep in mind that when Hughes was in, in his prime uh, competing in the Olympics, he ran at 213, so not much slower than what he's running now. In fact, he actually ran slower at the Olympics. Uh, he finished 72nd in 232.55 when he was competing. I think that was in 94, if I have that correctly. Uh, and it should also be mentioned that Hughes had a rough go in the last few years. You know, as recently as when he was in his 50s, he dealt with bouts of depression and alcoholism. Um, so it's amazing to see him bounce back. And if he can bounce back this well and run 230 at age 60, geez, who knows what else he's capable of? And what's our excuse? Good question. I know. I feel, you know, feeling sorry for myself on a, on a, on a Wednesday morning, not being able to get out of bed to go for a 10-mile run or even a less than 10-mile run, a 60-minute run. Uh, and this guy is extraordinary. Uh, he runs, I guess he runs, he, he typically, he, his training, he broke it down. Even today, his training is the same as it was when he was an Olympic-level athlete, which is he tends to run, uh, I think it's like two times 10 miles a day, like a morning and an evening 10-miler. And then uh, he does about 20-miler on on, the, on Sundays for a long run. And very simple training, one track session a week, uh, doesn't get carried away. He's He says he doesn't really wear a watch, just listens to his body. If he's tired, he takes takes it easier or takes time off or takes off one of those two runs a day. It's like a very simple form of training. I highly, highly recommend the, there's a feature in runner's world recently about him and about a little bit about this, the backstory. And it goes into the fact that he was, you know, uh, a guy who only really discovered his talent uh, as an adult and then made it into the Olympics and then post Olympics had a real kind of like, existential crisis where he he just went back i think he's an uh, electrician if i'm not mistaken he's a trades guy uh back to work started drinking heavily he was drinking like a like a bottle of vodka at night and uh it was just wrecking himself and then and then rediscovered running and started training again and it and it helped him pull his life back together again it's a pretty great story and it's it's uh it's worth a read we'll We'll put a link to it as well. So, um, yeah, Tommy Hughes. I'm sure we'll be talking about him again. I want to see him go sub 230. I want to see him get like close to the two-hour barrier, get get into Kipchoge territory. Next topic. Last one of the day of the week of October 2020. The IOC is preparing to run the 2021 Tokyo Olympics with... Or without COVID. The International Olympic Committee uh, President Thomas Box said that he doesn't expect any countries to have to opt out of competing at the 2021 Olympics. How convenient, Alex. Thomas Bach knows something that the rest of the world does not know, apparently. Or at least he's saying that the Olympics will go on 
regardless in 2021. Uh, break this down for us. Yeah, what a prescient claim from Buck saying that all athletes will be able to compete Tokyo 2021, even if they come from a country with a current or future high number of COVID-19 cases. So what he said was that athletes themselves do not bear responsibility for the virus. If they test negative and follow the safety regulations, they should have the opportunity to participate. So it seems that Bach is pushing for all 206 countries to at least have the chance to participate. So um, I guess in early uh, other words, if you have COVID by Olympic time, sucks to suck. Uh, okay, I've gone the entire podcast without swearing. And I was like so excited because my, my wife is like, just don't swear during the podcast. You know, like... Fuck this guy. This is fucking ridiculous. This is this is so this is so calculated, Andrew. This is so like how many how many fucking lawyers were in the room when when they figured out the exact wording for this? Um I'll take a step back. I'll calm down now. Uh in our script here, it's like Michael, ask Andrew, is this a good idea? Throw to Andrew to explain how they're gonna make this happen. So, Andrew. Is this a good idea? How, explain how this is going to happen. Well, as we talked about before, um, I mean, I, I don't personally have any any insight beyond what what's been published in the in the news, but it really does seem like like Bach is just saying we're going ahead regardless of what happens, and then he's you know shoving off all the papers and technicalities to the the. Japanese government, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government, and the the Tokyo Olympic Committee, and kind of saying to them, "All right, now you deal with this. You make sure this happens." So, I, I mean, I think everyone wants to see the Olympics happen. Um, we've seen successful running events take place. We've seen the Diamond Leagues have happened. The uh, the London Marathon was successful. Um, we've seen in other sports they've created bubbles in the NBA, the NHL, um, and they've gone well, but. But the one issue here is, is the Olympics is so much bigger. Um, at the 2016 Olympics, there were over 11,000 competitors. And that doesn't even include coaches, physio, doctors, the, the volunteers, the employees that make the Olympics happen. Um, so, so there is a task force. Uh, as, as I kind of mentioned, it's, it's been relegated to the Japanese government, Tokyo Metropolitan Government, and the, the Tokyo Olympic Committee. So it's on them to come up with covid countermeasures um and so far they've been going through possible scenarios and measures that could allow the games to run as scheduled in 2021 they've discussed um i I think just most recently they've discussed whether the international federations will establish their own rules on testing methods or whether there should be a uniform regulation which will be implemented which is extremely important we need to know that and and how that's going to function but Concerned how quickly the Olympics are coming up, you'd kind of think maybe they would have gotten the ball rolling on that already. Like, I feel like they're going to need to get some of this stuff implemented pretty quickly. Um, And I don't think they have anything established yet on, like, how are they dealing with spectators? Um, How are they going to separate athletes? Like, uh, in in the Olympic Village, in terms of accommodations, are they going to separate athletes by sport? Are they going to separate them by country, by event? Um, yeah, and also, I mean, I, you know, it's it's not always mentioned, but the Olympics is notorious for partying. And how are they going to tell these athletes that, you know, you've trained your entire life for this, but you have to stay in your room before and after your event. So 
I think it's possible to make it happen, but you know, I don't know if box helping it all that much. And I think if things go wrong, it could be really devastating. Let's be realistic here. Next spring is probably when we're going to start seeing a global rollout of, of, of a, a meaningful vaccine and a, on a, on a huge international scale. And then there's going to be a time period where we're going to need to see, we're going to have to, there's going to be like a wait and see period where it's probably going to be several months where we're going to see if the vaccine is effective and it's a, and there will be different vaccines in different regions of the world based on what pharmaceutical companies each country has partnered up with. You know, there's already a lot of skepticism around the, 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 the vaccine that's been used in Russia. We don't know how effective or not it is. Then there's the trust factor with each country, whether or not each country is being honest about the, the effectiveness of the vaccine. And is that going to get us to next August? Are we going to, are we going to get to a place by next August where there's that level of confidence where we're going to bring in 11,000 athletes uh, and probably what, 20, 30,000 other uh, staff, dignitaries, people associated with these various uh, national sport organizations, all the volunteers, even if there are no spectators, there's thousands of volunteers involved with this. So what Thomas Bach is doing right now is very clever and it's about money. And it's about those broadcast rights that he will not give up. He will not give up several billion dollars worth of broadcast rights that have the money is already flowing towards the IOC or will be flowing towards the IOC. And he's putting the onus on the Japanese government and the city of Tokyo and the organizing committee and saying, this is your move, not ours. We've already set this up. If you want to take the financial hit, you have to be the ones canceling the games. And all we're going to do is sit back and wait for your move. Um, and we're going to collect our money. And if we don't collect our money, you're going to have to cancel it and we're going to sue you for it. That's essentially what's playing out right now. And I think it's kind of disgusting. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm conflicted, Alex. It's like, I love the track, the big track meet that is the Olympics. I love the marathons that take place at the Olympics, but it seems like we're like heading for potentially a very bizarre, kind of gross showdown in 2021. Final analysis. We'll have to find out next week if those three fucks for Michael were worth it. <laughs> indeed. I see the doghouse getting cleaned out right now. Yeah, indeed, indeed, exactly. All right. Uh, I apologize to my wife for swearing if she's listening to this. She's gotten this far or if she's just like hit the stop button on the podcast after I dropped a few f-bombs all right guys uh that was the pod for this week thanks so much for for joining us and uh make sure to subscribe uh to our newsletter which we're actually porting over in time but for now it's at thexc.substack.com the exciting news is we've got our own uh full-time home at thexc.org thexc.org is where you can find all kinds of content beyond just this podcast, beyond just the newslettery stuff we send out. We're going to start uh, producing more frequently uh, in a variety of different stories uh, along the same lines that we've been doing all along. And you can follow us on our social channels at dxc.org. How convenient! It all aligns. It's all the same. All the same name. Huh. Branding. Branding. Imagine that. All right. Thanks very much. <laughs>